Hey, Scrum listeners, Adam Riley here with a quick preface to the episode you're about to hear. In it, Peter Kadzis, Sue O'Connell, and I talk about, among other things, the state legislature's collective failure to act on reducing signature requirements for candidates trying to get on the September 1st ballot, never mind COVID-19. This week, the state Senate passed a bill that critics said didn't go far enough, and it wasn't clear if or when the House would follow up. A few hours after we recorded, the Mass Supreme Judicial Court issued a ruling in a bipartisan lawsuit on this very topic, cutting signature requirements for all candidates in half, giving lower-level candidates some extra time, and allowing the use of electronic signatures. Why the legislature couldn't get this done is still a topic worthy of consideration. On to the pod. Hey, welcome to The Scrum, WGBH's politics podcast. I'm Adam Riley. In this episode, you're going to hear from me, Peter Kadzis, and Sue O'Connell, the NECN and NBC10 political commentator and co-publisher of the South End News and Bay Windows. Each of us got to pick one particular area where Massachusetts politics and the coronavirus crisis are converging, and then all three of us kicked it around for a bit before moving on to the next topic. We were, of course, talking by Zoom, as most of us tend to nowadays, and we started our convo by comparing notes on whether people in the places each of us live are doing what they're supposed to when they go out into the world. Sue O'Connell, first off, thanks for being here. Good to see you again, virtually. Let me ask you, what is the scene like in your neck of the woods when it comes to how people are living right now and whether they're doing the things that we're all supposed to be doing. Yeah, I'm in Roxbury. Uh, I'm in the Fort Hill section. Uh, I am in um, a traditional Roxbury neighborhood in that there's a lot of folks of color who have been here for a very long time. And I'm also surrounded by a bunch of students who have uh, moved here to go to Northeastern uh, primarily and the Longwood area, uh, Harvard Medical students. So uh, most of those people have left. So uh, the street is somewhat deserted from the newcomers who have come into the neighborhood. We are near a really great playground, the Marcella Playground, which is uh, brand new. I think for the most part, folks are adhering to uh, not playing basketball, not playing tennis. Uh, I've got a number of uh, kids in my neighborhood who are special needs and they're out with their parents in those neighborhoods. Uh, I mean, in those playgrounds being sort of carefully uh, monitored and watched and people are being respectful around the baseball track walking. So um, from my perspective overall, my neighborhood seems to be adhering um, to the social distancing rules and wearing masks and, and both both of my supermarkets seem to be doing a good job trying to manage that. You know, my personal beef is that people are driving really fast, uh, <laughs> which they usually do anyway in my neighborhood. But right now, you know, Columbus Avenue is a bit of a drag. Uh, dragway, uh, my street, Marcella Street, is a 40-mile-an-hour turn, which worries me when I'm out with my mask on walking my dogs. But, I mean, overall, I feel like um, that my neighborhood's doing what they're supposed to be doing. Peter Kansas, what about you in your particular spot in JP? Are people doing the right thing when they go outside and assemble in, you know, semi-social settings or people flouting the advice that we've been given? No, Mayor Walsh would be proud of the Peter Polly Road neighborhood in Jamaica Plain. It's all pretty buttoned up. Um, you know, you see 
couples walking with their masks, parents together with kids in a stroller. Um, no, it, it, it's um, a dense neighborhood, but the streets are very sparsely populated. I ask you guys this in part because I was going back and forth with some people on Twitter yesterday. I, I had said, uh, made the observation, I think in connection with the Globe article, and uh, that article got into disparities between the state's projections for the surge and that University of Washington Institute that a lot of people, myself included, have cited. I made the observation on Twitter that where I live, uh, which is in Swampscott, people seem to be doing what they are supposed to be doing, even though the governor has issued only an advisory rather than an order. And some people were saying to me, you know, where I am, it's, it's really radically different. People aren't doing what they're supposed to do. They walk around without masks. They get too close to each other. They're on top of each other in the grocery store. And by the way, I don't mean to suggest that your observations invalidate their observations, but it's good to hear that at least from your respective vantage points that people are, are doing what I see people doing, which is being smart. Listen, there's, there's two groups of people in my experience. Uh, you know, I try not to go, I'm trying to adhere to the not traveling rule as well, but I, I go to the supermarket and I go to the Stop and Shop in Jamaica Plain on Center Street and I go to the Whole Foods uh, on uh, Ink Block and Ink Block in the South End. And from my experience, there are so sort of two or three groups of people that are not wearing masks. One are folks who are developmentally disabled or in a very vulnerable population. I, you know, I had one guy outside my CVS who had a mask on top of his head and was asking me to buy him something. And I basically bribed him and said, I'll buy you a Reese's cup if you put the mask on, you know. Um, and then there are the young people, you know, and the young people across every sort of socioeconomic demographic, every ethnic demographic uh, that you can imagine um, that are uh, mostly, you know, under the age of 30, couples who seem to be in love and are kind of going through this great crisis with some romanticism, God bless them, but not wearing masks and standing in line. So um, I've only gotten in one fight in line, and uh, I'm proud of myself for that, <laughs> about someone not wearing a mask. I want to talk about uh, the issues of substance that we're gathered here to talk about. <laughs> I cannot, cannot move ahead without asking you, yeah. if you're comfortable, to describe a little bit. Sure. Yeah, no, it was last week. I was in line at Whole Foods waiting to get in. I, they're doing a great job with the social distancing. There's a guy behind me who's probably under 40. He's an Uber driver. He's on his phone without a mask speaking very loudly to his friend Scott about how he's sick of rich celebrities telling them not to wear masks, not to go out. He's sick of people telling him what to do. He can't believe this. Who do they think they are? This was going on and on and on and on and on. And I didn't have my headphones with me, my bad. And then he accidentally hit the speaker part of the phone. And then I started to hear Scott. And I just turned around and looked at him and said, dude, you don't have a mask on and I'm not gonna be able to bear listening to Scott. <laughs> And of course, he started yelling back at me about how we should be nice to each other, and who do I think I am, and blah, 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 blah. And a bunch of people just sort of looked at me like, if you need help, we're here, you know, and I'm thinking, thank God I don't have on my NECN NBC 10 jacket. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but he left, and then people came up to me saying, you know, thanks for saying that, that's exactly, you know, which I wouldn't have said if he hadn't hit the speaker button by accident, which, my bad, it was an accident, he did turn it off, but it is sort of like, you know, it's, it, it's the this day-to-day -day problems that we all have, like I hate the speeders on my street, 
I hate people who have things on speakerphone. And at this time of crisis, it's on my last gay nerve. <laughs> <laughs> Mother pride is not having any of it today. <laughs> All right, on to, I guess, our, our main event, which is each one of us introducing a topic that we're particularly focused on right now in the world of Massachusetts politics. Sue, you get to go first as the guest of honor. What is it that you want to bring to the fore when it comes to how politics in this state are playing out right now during this pandemic? Yeah, I'm just totally fascinated about um, how people are campaigning. You know, in our lifetimes, we have all seen differences and things that emerge that make campaigning remarkably different. I mean, I, I remember when how excited I think we all were when Barack Obama as a candidate had an email list. Remember how exciting that was that he actually had an email list and he could send it out, people would respond to it. And so here we are in COVID-19 with social distancing, uh, making all sorts of things difficult to do. And one of the things that, you know, folks at home probably don't pay that much attention to is rightly so, most of the media is paying, you know, 90% of the attention uh, to COVID-19 and, and treatments and possible treatments and hopefully vaccines and what you're supposed to do and what you're not supposed to do and what the numbers are. And at the same time, candidates are trying to break through in order to get attention for their, we have, you know, for their campaign. We have a very heated congressional race uh, to replace Joe Kennedy over in Mass 04. Uh, and there's a whole bunch of Democrats who are vying for that and they're trying to get attention. Meanwhile, the Kennedy-Markey race the for Senate with Markey as the incumbent, they're trying to break through uh, as well to get people to pay attention. So I was fascinated this week that um, Jesse Murmel, who full disclosure is a friend of mine, is uh, a congressional candidate for the Mass 04 district. And she was able to do something which I think was very difficult, which is thread the needle of sort of taking a moment to show the behind the scenes in her campaign. Uh, she's been running a viral campaign, and I don't mean in the COVID sense, since the beginning with sort of daily social media updates, daily videos, virtual town halls. But she did a little bit behind the scenes of what it's like trying to run a campaign from your dining room with your pesky dog, Isabella, who was also a star of the campaign. And I thought she just did a nice job uh, hitting a balance that was both, you know she's a serious candidate, you know there are serious issues she cares about, but there's also challenges that we're all having that are a little bit funny if we could just take a moment to look at it. She was helped a lot in that video, I thought by the dog's natural born talent, right? Yes, I mean, that dog, yes. And I, I was not aware of the dog's name, but- Isabella, it, yes. It's, it's an exceptionally animated dog. There's a moment in the video where the dog stands up on its hind legs and sort of paddles <laughs> its paws in the air because it wants something. So she got a boost from Isabella, right? Yes, and Isabella, you know, full disclosure also, um, Likes to, likes to say, uh, Jesse likes to say that Ayanna Presley, uh, Congresswoman Ayanna Presley is Isabella's godmother. Uh, you know, <laughs> Jesse and Ayanna are best friends. So Isabella has had her own sort of um, social media presence, presence well before Jesse ran uh, for Congress. So it, it's, it is just sort of a lighthearted moment because we're all dealing with dogs and kids and sirens and trash collections. And I thought she just thread the needle appropriately on that. Well, and Isabella is such a high-maintenance dog. That, that's, that's pretty clear. The dog is not to be denied. Uh, she's going to get her camera time. Listen, I'm a dog person, have a dog myself. Um, I really enjoyed the video. 
and I don't enjoy anything. <laughs> I was going to say. <laughs> now, what about, what about on a similar note, Sue, when we were talking before this conversation, you had mentioned this now notorious tweet from Ed Markey. Yeah. A lot of our listeners will have seen this tweet, but for those who haven't, or for those who just want to reimmerse themselves in the magic of it, can you describe <laughs> this tweet? Yeah, Ed Markey, who I, you know, got it, it, a very progressive candidate, a very progressive elected official with a great, great, you know, if you're a Democrat, you're a progressive, you got to love Markey, but he's having a hard time cutting through against, obviously, Joe Kennedy for many reasons. Uh, and he posted, or his campaign posted, a picture of him in a, um, a windbreaker and a pair of slacks, and he had a pair of high-top sneakers on and a mask. And it was intended just to sort of send the message that you should be wearing a mask out in public. But there was just something about the studied casualness of it and the fact that, you know, we're so desperate for some personality from Ed Markey that the fact that he wears high tops, you know, was this breakthrough kind of minute for him. Um, but it was very endearing. And again, I thought it was one of those moments where it just shows them in their natural habitat a bit. What, what made that snapshot work for me is um, the senator looked like one of the best dressed friends of uh, Eddie Coyle. Right. <laughs> like they were going to go out and knock over a bank or right. lose some cars. He was dressed like an off-duty cop, which I think that, you know, yeah. an undercover cop of a certain age, you know, it's like a, my daughter's always cracking up whenever we're somewhere. I go, well, there are the cops. Well, how can you tell? Because they got the windbreaker on and they, they have those like semi-casual khakis on. I would just add, he's standing in front of his home in Malden, which adds to the Friends of Eddie Coyle <laughs> atmosphere that Peter's talking about. Yeah. And... One of, the, one of the reasons I think that this has been retweeted, if I'm right now, 13,000 times, mm -hmm. he's wearing high tops, but they're not just any high tops. They right. are high tops. I think I remember seeing when I was a really crappy high school basketball player in the late 80s, and they were sort of the, the cool high tops that the really good players had. I don't know what, what model of Nikes they are, but they're yeah, I think that might be converse i think no, they're, 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 they're definitely, definitely nike and i've seen different theories about what the specific <laughs> model is but they're yeah. back in the day they were really cool shoes yeah. and i think yeah. for people who like sneakers they still are really cool shoes right so you've got this completely unassuming presentation and then these shoes that make you know 20% of the people who see the image say, holy shit, look at that. So yeah, really a, an incredible piece of campaign promotional activity at a moment where it seems like it's really hard to campaign effectively. Yeah, and I'm both equally impressed if it was highly stylized and totally on purpose or just highly accidental. I'm just completely, I, I feel, I feel equally okay about loving it either way. All right. I guess it is my turn now to introduce a topic. And I'm cheating here a little bit because I've been doing a lot of work on this over the course of the week. Peter's been my editor, so he gets a boost too. But I have become increasingly obsessed with this battle to get signature requirements for candidates trying to get on the ballot in Massachusetts reduced in light of the coronavirus crisis. As a lot of our listeners will know, again, as Peter, Sue, I think both of you know full well, the Senate passed a bill yesterday, Thursday, that would reduce the threshold, it would cut it in half 
for some candidates, candidates who, according to state law, have to get more than 1,000 signatures to make the ballot. So if you're running for U.S. Senate, instead of having to get 10,000 signatures, now you'd have to get five. If you're running for the U.S. House, instead of getting 2,000 signatures, you'd have to get one. However, the Senate bill does not reduce the threshold for state House and state Senate candidates. We have to get a lot fewer. It's 300 for the Senate, 150 for the House. But they're dealing with the same issues that people trying to get on the ballot for federal seats are dealing with, namely that no one wants you to go up to them and ask them to sign a piece of paper and handle the pen that you're going to be giving them to sign the piece of paper. It's just it's not really something people are comfortable with right now. We don't know if the House is going to act on this. The House, I think, is not back in session until next Tuesday at the earliest. There's a deadline looming in just a few days for these candidates. And then meanwhile, and I'll shut up and, and let you guys weigh in here, there were arguments yesterday, Thursday, in the Supreme Judicial Court. Three candidates, two Democrats and one Republican, have filed suit against Bill Galvin in the state saying, you should either get rid of these requirements altogether or cut them by two-thirds so that all candidates have to obtain an appropriately reduced number of signatures. And their lawsuit also suggests give us a little extra time and make it possible to get these signatures electronically rather than in the old school face-to-face -face way. Can you guys give me a good justification for the state legislature moving as slowly as it has <laughs> and as selectively as it has when it comes to responding to what seems to me like a, a no-brainer of a situation? It's, it's unconscionable, Adam. Um, it's unconscionable. You know, we're five weeks into this, give or take a few days. There was plenty of time to act. Um, this is emblematic of Beacon Hill's, you know, Chicago-esque philosophy. You know, we don't want nobody that nobody sent. And if you're not a member of the office holder class, they don't want it to make it any easier for anyone to run against them. That, I believe, is at the root of this. There's also a, a more sinister take. The House is the one holding this up. Um, Ed Markey is falling short of the number of signatures he may needs. Um, uh, uh, Kennedy apparently is okay. Um, could it, by the way, I have no evidence for this, but could it be a put up job? The, the fact is that Beacon Hill is opaque at the best of times. Um, it, it's now totally shrouded in secrecy because of um, the quite understandable social distancing rules. Um, I know you were covering the SJC yesterday, and I, I dipped in and out of watching the justices question the various parties. And this is my impression, just my impression. I, I got the feeling that at least some of the justices were sort of dumbfounded by this by what they consider, at least what some of them considered to be um, the unconstitutionality of it. Not the unconstitutionality in violating the letter of the law, but certainly in violating the spirit of the law. Yeah, I started working on covering this, I think two weeks ago over at NACN, and every day I had to update it, <laughs> you know, which uh, because of the sort of twists and turns it was taking, I spoke to uh, Secretary of State Galvin's office, and they made clear to me at the time that it had to be the state lawmakers that did things, that they didn't really have the authority or felt 
that it was within their wheelhouse to be able to make these changes. I mean, I would put forward too that, and to, I agree with Peter 100%. You're also requiring candidates to do something that the governor of the state is asking them not to do. So, you know, in, in, the, in the broader spirit of it, it would be a violation of the governor's orders to collect signatures in the way that they want. I would also say, I don't know why the idea that we would just go fully electronic to allow it would be a barrier when we're not asking people for IDs. I've collected signatures. I've actually been out at a at a supermarket asking people to sign for uh, a, you know a ballot question or sign for a candidate. You only ask them if they're a citizen of where you're collecting. You're not asking them for ID. So I, I would posit that it might even be easier to verify um, and have a better record of electronic signatures rather than this arcane signing it asking them to print it and then asking you know folks to have to verify it in a dark room. Sue, I don't know if you were listening to any of the SJC arguments yesterday or if you were off the story yesterday, but that was something that some of the justices pointed out as well. They, they said, you know, there's really no rigor when it comes to getting, and by the way, this is really gross. Did you know that they're called wet signatures? You probably did, but that's what they called them, wet signatures. Wet, right, because the ink is wet. Which it's is supposed just, to be the, yeah. Nasty. Anyway, they pointed out there's no rigor attached to obtaining wet signatures and that if you're concerned about verifiability, it's probably easier if you want to raise a question about a signature to say, okay, where was this emailed from? There's all this, you know, location data, mm -hmm. maybe access, there's privacy concerns there, but. I'd also add to Peter's point about the power structure here. Like, you know, you can hear the deafening silence from the candidates who have their signatures or feel confident that they have enough signatures when it comes to supporting the candidates who don't have their signatures, right? You know, and you also hear this, have this two tier uh, issue regarding the, 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 the rep candidates who need fewer signatures but still can't get them. I mean, there's no, uh, to, to kind of paraphrase the Disney sing-along from uh, Thursday night, we're not all in this together, uh, apparently, when it comes to democracy. One argument that the defenders of, I guess, a more moderate fix have made, uh, I believe in the Senate and also the state made this argument to the SJC yesterday is, well, if you drop the threshold by half or two thirds for people who only have to get 300 or 150 signatures to begin with, in other words, state Senate and state representatives, well, then you're just gonna have this massive flood of people getting on the ballot and we will have abandoned our gatekeeper function. I think my tone of voice suggests that <laughs> I don't find that overly convincing. Do you two think there's any merit to that protestation? Not, not, under, not under current circumstances. Um, frankly, I think in general, the number of signatures required for the House and the Senate is low, but um, the, the, the circumstances change everything. Look, we've changed the MCAS requirements, waived them to allow high school kids to graduate because of the circumstances. We've pushed back the tax filing dates for businesses and for personal income tax at the state level. Again, very sensibly. And by the way, those decisions will cost the state money. We'll either have to dip into the, the uh, rainy day fund or borrow money because that means the state is going to be getting needed cash much later. So, you, you know, Beacon Hill has accommodated the special COVID-19 circumstances as long as they don't apply to themselves. 
Um, it's it's a, uh, yet another black mark against the um, office holding class in Massachusetts. Although I have to exempt the state Senate, um, I don't know what took them so long to do what they did, but nevertheless, they did it. Yeah, I mean, it's, and it's, I agree with Peter. I mean, I think there should be a, a threshold. You have to show some uh, due diligence, some effort, some elbow grease to get on the ballot. But at this time when we're, uh, we're waiving a bunch of other stuff, it should be waived. And I think it's also time to take this opportunity of this crisis to say, what can we do better when we get to the other side? All right, last but not least, Peter Kadzis, what is your MA poly COVID-19 topic of interest today? Well, it's a rather bizarre one, and that's um, how a lone wolf Republican has scuttled the eviction mortgage protection um, legislation that the House and the Senate agreed upon and which Governor Baker urged the adoption of. It's Representative Dooley um, who more or less swooped in at the last minute and took advantage of the fact that because the legislature is meeting in informal sessions due to um, social distancing requirements, that any an objection from any single member can derail a piece of legislation. Now, this legislation, you know, uh, hold on to your hats, folks, but it's actually a pretty good piece. I mean, what it does is, is it, it protects landlords, allows them to dip into your security deposit if you can't pay your rent, not to cover your rent, but if, if a pipe breaks and they need to, to fix their tenant's kitchen, they can pay for that by dipping into the extra month's rent most people pay, you know, before they move in. Uh, it does not absolve tenants from their obligation to pay the rent, but it, it goes, I, I think it's 45, it gives them wiggle room so that there's a period of 45 days after the governor's emergency is lifted for them to play catch up. Now, what's so outrageous about what Dooley did is not that he did it. One, he hasn't explained why he did it. But two, he didn't participate in the whole process whereby progressives and conservatives, advocates for tenants and advocates for landlords, all got together and did what the legislature is supposed to do, compromise, synthesize on points of agreement, mitigate points of disagreement. As you know, I'm often very critical of the legislature, but not in this instance. They did a wonderful job. And we have, you know, a lone wolf coming out of nowhere with no explanation, bucking the leader of his party and bucking all his colleagues. I mean, it, it's, it's an example of a, of a minority having more power than the majority. Yeah, I, I, it's, it's unclear to me what, what's happening there. I mean, having gone to the last recession where, you know, I, I was upside down on my mortgage and I had to prove in order to try and get a mortgage mo modification, which we couldn't do. And you, ha you have to prove that you can't pay your bills in order to get it. So you don't pay your bills. I mean, there's a whole bunch of moving parts here that landlords, just mom and pop landlords, I'm not talking about the big, big landlords, 
are, are going to have to, if they can't pay their mortgages because their tenants can't pay their rent, they're going to have to prove some sort of hardship in order to get relief. Um, so there's a whole bunch of domino pieces here that have to be in place in order for that to happen. This bill would have assisted everybody in that way. And so I'm just befuddled. So what now, given the procedural situation that Beacon Hill is in, what recourse, if any, do the people who back this bill have now that this one guy has gummed up the works? Well, they can keep bringing the bill up. Um, it's passed the Senate, so um, it, it's in the House. Theoretically, um, procedure allows for this bill to be brought up over and over and over again. I don't know whether this will happen. And unless Dooley changes his mind or is absent, um, there is a chance it could pass. But I, I honestly don't know how to read the tea leaves here. Hmm. That's kind of depressing. Very depressing. Yeah, very depressing. Very depressing stuff. It's very irresponsible. All right, on that somewhat downbeat note, Sue O'Connell, thank you for making time to talk with me and Peter. It was our pleasure, as always. Great to see you, too. Thank you. And I second it. All right, that is going to do it for another installment of The Scrum. Thanks to Sue O'Connell for joining me and Peter Kadzis, and to you for listening. Subscribe to The Scrum, rate us, and talk back to us by email at scrum at wgbh.org or on Twitter. I'm at Riley Adam. Peter is at Kadzis. And Sue is at SueNBCBoston. You can also bend the ear of our producer, Zoe Matthews. She's at Zoe S. Matthews, S as in Sage, Matthews with one T. I'm Adam Riley. The Scrum is a production of WGBH News.